reading from the book of Jeremiah. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanumel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanumel came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field in Anatot for my cousin Hanamel, and weighed out the money to him, seventeen shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase, containing the terms and conditions, and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
letter of Paul to Timothy. There is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, men of God, shun all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous, and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.
Jesus said, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come to lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Holy God, holy and merciful, teach us to look outside our gate. Help us to be responsive to the needs around us and forgive us when we do not see. Amen. Our Gospel reading this morning is a parable, but it's a parable that draws on the tradition of apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is a form of prophecy talking about future events, and normally it seems in sort of a bizarre way. There's these fantastic worlds that are created. The word itself comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which means an uncovering or an unveiling of some secret truth. Most often we translate the word as revelation. The tradition of apocalyptic literature in our scriptures comes from the book of Daniel to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Christian scriptures. And it's important to put our lessons in this genre, because although apocalyptic literature takes place in some mysterious sort of psychedelic future, its message is always about the here and the now. Apocalyptic literature is used to criticize current events in sort of a veiled meaning by looking at a future time. 
The book of Daniel was a criticism of the political leaders of his time. The revelation of John is a criticism of the Roman Empire. Sort of a covert way of saying things that if you said openly you would get into trouble for saying. Apocalyptic literature is about the future, but at the same time, it's about the now. And this is where we find our parable today. About the future, but also about now. This parable is also driven by a theme of reversal. This theme that Jesus teaches so often, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And this reversal happens in the very beginning of our story. You see, we have two men. We have a rich man, and we have a poor man. Now, society would tell us that the rich man is more important. The rich man is the one that we should know the name of, and the poor man is inconsequential. But what we have is the exact opposite. Our reversal starts at the beginning. The rich man has no name, but we know that the poor man's name is Lazarus. And this wasn't any ordinary rich man. The parable says that he wore purple every day. And this purple, again in Greek, is porphyra. And this, this is the, the dye that comes from a sea snail that is so incredibly valuable, so rare, so hard to collect, that it was what the emperors wore. This is the royal purple. This is something that's not used every day. And underneath this, he has fine linen from India, from Egypt. His garments aren't just wealthy, they are the wealthiest. And our scripture passage tells us that this isn't just what he wore for a certain occasion. This was his everyday clothing. In addition to that, he feasted sumptuously every day. Feasts that you and I may only have once a year or once a lifetime. He had everyday fine wines, amazing foods. I can imagine the best chefs were in his employ. Now this man wasn't just wealthy, he was lavishly and ostentatiously wealthy. He was just plain, filthy, rich. <laughs> then we have the complete opposite. A man who wasn't just poor, a man who was beyond poor. Not only did he lack money, but he lacked a home. And his very body was impoverished through illness. And this illness made him unclean, and his uncleanliness was exacerbated by the dogs adding their own saliva to his open sores. This man wasn't just poor, he was poorest of the poor. These are not ordinary people in our story today. They're not people that we might come across in our everyday lives, but they're hyperbolic characters. They're more than reality. They're, they're extreme caricatures of wealth and poverty. And what this tells us is that we are not meant to identify with one or the other of these characters. They're on such extremes so that it places the reader in the middle of the story, in the middle of the message. It says to us that we all have something to learn from the story. None of us can tune out the message. 
None of us can be completely like Lazarus, so that we don't need to listen. None of us can be completely like the rich man, so that we will end up in this terrible place. So we have these two men on opposite sides. They may not even know each other. Lazarus is aware of the wealthy man as he sits outside his gate, but the wealthy man may not even know of Lazarus, the existence of Lazarus, but they united in one event. The one event that we all face as they're united in death. And again, the reversal happens. Lazarus, the poor man, his death is a blessing. The angels come and pick him up and take him to Abraham's bosom. And for the rich man, the man that we would expect to have a long description of his funeral of mourners, all we have is that he was died and buried. And he ends up in a place of torment. Our scene then shifts to Hades. Hades is again a particular trope in apocalyptic literature. It's neither here nor there. It's some place where people go to wait until the final judgment. This is not the end place. This is sort of just like a cosmic layover on a final destination. We have a dialogue in between the rich man and Abraham. It's interesting to me that even at this point, the rich man doesn't acknowledge the presence of Lazarus. He speaks to the important person. He speaks to Abraham and and this man who's so accustomed to having anything he wants, to drinking the finest wines, just begs for Lazarus to come over and just dip his finger in the water. That would be enough. But Abraham says no. And he says, even if I wanted to, there's a chasm fixed between us. Just like in life, there was a gate fixed between the rich man and Lazarus in death. There is something immovable in between them. So the rich man gives up on this and he says, you know what, Abraham, just send Lazarus to my brothers. I'm worried that they're going to end up here. Tell them to change their ways. Abraham again says no. The rich man doesn't give up. He says, you know what, if they saw somebody who was dead, if a ghost came to them, then they would believe. And Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even somebody rises from the dead. Of course, you know, the early Christian community that would be listening to this, they might read themselves into that. Because they knew that somebody did rise from the dead. And a lot of people who had heard Moses and had heard the prophets didn't believe that Jesus didn't hear that. And I think if we look at the early Christian community, the community that gave birth to this gospel, we can get to a deeper understanding of what this parable is trying to say to us. The early Christians, of course, they weren't even called Christians, they were called followers of the way, created a radical new way of being together. When they came together, the, the community was not hierarchical. It wasn't stratified like the rest of life was. When you came together to worship God, there were rich and there were poor. There were slaves that were free. There were Jews and Greeks and Gentiles, and they were all coming together in 
to one place. And that diversity is beautiful, but doesn't mean that it's always easy to live in the middle of that. Sometimes it can be problematic. Paul addresses this in the letter to the Corinthians when he talks about the love feast that they had after communion. And some of the wealthy people were coming early and they were eating before the people who worked came. And they were getting drunk and they were eating all the fine things so that when the poor people came, there was nothing left. And Paul addresses that and says, this is wrong. This is not how we're supposed to live together. I think this is what's going on in this parable, is how do we relate to each other with all of the diversity that we have. There was also another strain of thought in early Christianity, this thought of Gnosticism that was present in all of the communities. And, and this Gnosticism said that the path is spiritual. The path is spiritual. The world, the physical, is evil. So we don't have to worry about the world. We have to focus on our inner spiritual lives. This is perhaps what the wealthy people thought that Paul was writing to. They didn't have to take care of the poor around them because they had to primarily take care of their own soul. The physical didn't matter. I can't help but think this train of thought is still present with us in Christianity. Many Christian leaders will get up and say that we don't need to take care of the poor. They need to take care of themselves. And this is exactly what this parable is speaking against. We have Moses, we have the prophets. Moses, who teaches us to live well with God, ourselves, and other people through obedience. And the prophets who demand that we seek justice and mercy and love. And this is the importance of Abraham's last words. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. The clear message is here is that person who rose from the dead, that God incarnate Jesus who rose from the dead is the continuation of Moses and the prophets. Jesus doesn't offer something completely different where we disregard how we live with each other. Jesus is the completion. We can't deny Moses' call to live rightly or the prophets demand to live justly and love mercy. The biblical scholar Francois Beaufort writes, the reason Christ doesn't allow human beings access to God without their practicing obedience and love of neighbor any more than Moses and the prophets do. The rich man wanted his brothers convinced. But conviction is not just about knowledge or faith. It's about this passage is about how do we live as Christians. This is why there's a reversal. This is why there's always reversals in the Gospels. It's to help us to think differently, to reconsider our own actions, our own things that we do. The status of the rich man wasn't reversed because of his wealth. It wasn't because he was rich, because of all the things that he was possessed. It was because he was blinded by his wealth. It's because he did not act justly and righteously with that wealth. Every day, an incredibly poor and suffering man sat outside of his gate. 
not only did he not see to Lazarus' needs, but it appears that he didn't even notice the man who created just the scrubs on his table. This is why their situations in life are reversed in death. This is the action the parable is calling us to. Like the early church, we exist in communities with a great diversity of wealth. We here at Trinity are a community of a diversity of wealth. And I'm not just talking about wealth, about money. I'm talking about wealth of education, wealth of availability, of opportunity. And this disparity of our world demands that we act. We are obligated to the needs of those around us, and no one escapes obligation. And let me tell you, it's not about being obliged in the big things, the extraordinary things. Because if we looked on a big scale, and we looked at the two characters in our parable, you would have the rich man. And in his society, wealth was considered a blessing from God. So the rich man would be the one that everybody around him looked at and said, wow, God really loves him. He's special. He's the one that's blessed. And they would say the exact same thing about Lazarus. He's the one that's cursed by God because of his poverty, because of his sickness, and his illness. And, and, and perhaps the rich man did everything society demanded of him. Maybe he tithed. Maybe he gave money to his synagogue, to the temple. He sacrificed. Maybe he invited people to his feasts, but these people I met were people like him. His position isn't reversed because of the large, extraordinary things, but because every day of his life, he ignored the needs of one man sitting outside of his gate. It's the everydayness of our lives that matters. Sometimes it's so easy for us to go and take care of the poor over there. Wherever that over there is, maybe it's an economically challenged area of our urban centers, maybe it's a third world country, but someplace removed from us. And while this can be good and holy work, Christ so often calls us to consider right where we are here and now, to something much more intimate, to something much more demanding. How, in the everydayness of our lives, do we care and love for those around us? How do we seek out those in need right here in our home community? How often do we look at the poverty within our own souls. How often are our eyes open to who is what to who is right at our gate? Or are we blinded? This is the message of the apocalyptic parable. This is the message that Christ has for each and every one of us. Open your eyes. Look around See who is in need and act. Amen.
those without jobs, those serving in the military, all who work for peace, and all those suffering as they flee war-torn countries. Are there others? Have compassion on those who suffer from any grief or trouble. We pray especially for the repose of the souls of Fernando Alvarez, husband of Emma Alvarez, and Bailey Thorne, daughter of Libby and Samuel Thorne. Are there others? Give to the departed eternal rest. We praise you for your saints who have entered into joy. Let us pray for our own needs and those of others. O Lord our God, accept the fervent prayers of your people. In the multitude of your mercy, look with compassion upon us and all who turn to you for help. For you are gracious, O lover of souls, and to you we give glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbors.
Jay Luby, your senior warden. Uh, I've received special dispensation to exceed the, the usual time limit. Uh, speaking on behalf of the vestry, we would really appreciate your assistance on an important issue that requires a limited time commitment. Specifically, starting in December, we'd really, uh, we need your help in providing coffee hour services on just the first Sunday of each month. Trinity's been blessed to have a number of dedicated parishioners who supply food and manage coffee hour throughout the year. For instance, did you know that Margo Matthews and Barbara Carvey have been coordinating providing this service year in and year out for decades? If Margo and Barbara are in, uh, here, I'd appreciate they stand up. Please stand up. Barbara, thank you so much for all you do. 
truly truly fortunate to have a number of very dedicated parishioners who have helped us and I would take too long to, to list them all but we're, we're very uh, grateful um, in fact we have dedicated teams that are responsible each Sunday to uh, handle coffee hour uh, and they cover the second, third, fourth and if needed the fifth Sundays however we don't have the first Sunday cover the best um, used to cover that and now we've given them other assignments so we need to have replacements for that unfortunately volunteer efforts for coffee hour often fly under the radar but if you think about it our coffee hour is a special ministry and in some ways it's, there are many ways it's the glue that holds together our fellowship so it's very important so what are the options we propose one if you'd like just to handle one Sunday throughout the, one Sunday in the entire year, that would be fine. That would be a big help. And in fact, Daryl and Ann Louise Payson are doing that in October. Ideally, uh, if a number of Christians, three or four other Christians, say a total of five, could get together and create a team so that you could offer uh, or, or handle the coffee hour the first Sunday of each month, that would be a nice, ideal scenario. In addition, if you're a group that wants to either um, highlight what you're doing or perhaps recruit new members, that would be, be a great opportunity to do that. Uh, earlier this year, the, the new women's walking group did that. They handled um, coffee hour. So if you've ever wanted to get involved with Trinity in some activity or another, but you just haven't had that much time, this seems to present a, a perfect opportunity where you can just volunteer one Sunday in the entire year, or perhaps a number of Sundays, the first Sunday in, in a, a given month, in, in each month. Um, we hope you'll consider that. If you uh, would like to talk about this further, if you have questions, I would appreciate if you approach uh, either Margo or me uh, after coffee hour, yeah, during coffee hour. Thank you very much. and along with uh, Ann Lynch, uh, our co-facilitator for the forthcoming bereavement support group that's mentioned in your bulletin. I'm not going to repeat what's in there, but I just want to uh, call your attention to the fact that even though these sessions are held here at Trinity, they're open to everyone regardless of your faith or church affiliation. In fact, the majority of our past participants have been from outside of Trinity. Uh, this is a support room for anyone who has lost a loved one and is interested in learning about the grieving process and how to cope with the loss. This will be the 14th time that these sessions have been held over the past 10 years. They've been found by previous participants to be very helpful. It's, um, this is not a therapy group, it's a support group, and we cover a different subject every week. That's why it's important that uh, the participants come every time because we go subjects from coping to the emotions, uh, the value of faith in, in this process, memories, how to handle special events, uh, birthdays, holidays, uh, so forth, and then how to get on with one's life uh, after this uh, grief and, and during the bereavement. So if you know anyone who might be interested, uh, we'd like to have everyone signed up by the end of this week, at least to know who they are so we can plan accordingly. So spread the word and have uh, either call or have someone else call and lunch at the church office. Thanks.
will be healing prayer right over here during communion and immediately following for anyone who would like prayers for something specific that's on their heart today. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us offering and sacrifice.
the Lord our God.
And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say, Our Father,
blessing of God Almighty, the Father, 